Welcome to the Peace Building Podcast. Join host Susan Coleman as she interviews today's most creative, courageous, and sometimes outrageous mediators, coaches, entrepreneurs, and out-of-the-box thinkers whose work, whether intended or not, is building peace. Tune in for 45 minutes of pure inspiration as we explore the best stories, the best practices, the best ideas of a new world emerging. Here's your host, global consultant, coach, facilitator, and mediator, Susan Coleman. All right, everybody. I have uh, Alda Civico here with me, and we've been trying for a long time to get together in person to say hello to each other, but now right. we, we couldn't do that, but now we have been able to do this on this podcast. So um, it's really a pleasure to have him. He's a, oh, he's so many things. He's an anti-terrorism leader, a peace builder, an anthropologist uh, dedicated to conflict resolution, an author, and uh, Senator George Mitchell, who... Um, for those of you in the United States, I'm sure you know him. Um, others may not. He's the U.S. Uh, special envoy to the Middle East, has called Aldo um, a um, one of the most innovative leaders in the field of conflict resolution. And um, so I, um, in my usual style, I, I, I'm not going to go into a ton about your background, Aldo, because I'm going to put it on the website um, with the podcast. Um but uh, before I, I do want to read a little bit of your bio, so maybe first I'll just get your voice in the room and say hello. <laughs> <I haven't laughs> given you a, yeah. To you and everybody listening to us, thank you have, for uh, having me. Very yeah. So, and I want you to know you can't see him, but Aldo has on this beautiful shawl. From where is that? Uh, this is. I, I think it's from. Uh, it looks like from Latin America or something, but it's actually from uh, IKEA. Oh no! It's just very tough. <laughs> It uh, has wonderful <laughs> colors, uh, and it's a little bit cold uh, here today in in New York, so I just put it on. Yeah, no, it's really beautiful, and it totally looks like you got yeah, it, you yeah. know, in Colombia. From my field work, or what? Right, right, right. Just well, around you could, the corner you, from my. You should, you should just say, you should just say <laughs> that it came from the field work. Don't say it came from IKEA. Okay, I want to um, just. Uh, I do love the beginning of Aldo's. Um, I mean, his whole bio is totally interesting, and I recommend you go and read it and and take it fully in. But um, I'm going to just read you a little bit. Um, in the late summer of 2003, in a high security prison of Colombia, Aldo Civico met with a top leader of the National Liberation Army, uh, Guerrilla. That first conversation turned into a series of encounters that eventually brought Aldo to become a facilitator of ceasefire negotiations between the Colombian government and the guerrilla. Shuttling between Colombia, Cuba, Washington, D.C., Aldo used a variety of sophisticated skills in order to perform under incredible stress to build trust with extremely difficult people and to understand the model of the world understand the model of the world of his interlocutors, I can never say that word, interlocutors. A powerful storyteller, Aldo, enchants audiences from beginning to end as he shares the inspiring experiences as a catalyst for change from Colombia to Mexico, from Syria to Haiti, from Italy to the United States. Drawing from his work in the field, Aldo inspires people to become outstanding leaders by building rapport and reframing conflict as an opportunity for personal and organizational growth. His message of stop arguing over who is right and instead explore each other's story exemplifies his approach and the philosophy top mediators use to resolve the toughest problems. So um, I will just say also that 
You know, I had Zach Metz on here a little while ago, and I said to Zach, I said, you know, you were the first person that I saw putting Peace Builder builder on your business card. Now, you might have had that on yours before, Zach, but but I remember you being the second person that was just putting yourself out there as somebody who described themselves as a Peace Builder, and it was very um, uh, inspiring to me. So so I don't know if you want to add anything at the outset. I mean, I know one of the things I... I really want to uh, cover with you. I'd like to hear more. I'd like to hear more, and I'll get to these questions one at a time, but I'd like to hear more about what planted the seeds in you um, to be to, to do this work. Yeah. Um, I'd like to hear uh, a story. I, th- I think I told you that in our pre-interview, and I don't know what story you're going to tell, but you got so many of them, uh, and you're yeah. a storyteller, so I'm uh, a... <laughs> Um, and then I, and then I was hoping if time allows us, I know you put a lot of weight on, uh, on the, um, individual development all the way to the, uh, uh, global negotiations. And, um, and I thought it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about that, um, from you as well. Um, so. Sure. Yeah. You know, uh, as you were asking me the question, uh, who put the seed or somehow when that happened, um, it, just a story came to to mind uh, where I made a discovery about my own life, and uh, and that actually was uh, a few years ago. I, I believe it was two thousand and seven, uh, when I was involved in the um, facilitating the ceasefire negotiations between the um, government of Colombia and the ELN insurgency in Colombia, which is the second largest um insurgence group in, in Colombia. And and so I got to go to after the, the FARC is the, after the, the FARC. Yeah mm-hmm. the FARC. Uh, and, and the ELN is in uh, pre-talks uh, right now, so, so we are hoping that they make the step necessary to actually embrace peace finally after years of uh, armed struggle. Um, but so it was in July, it was an attempt to uh, to reach a ceasefire agreement with them. And so at one point I <clears throat> was invited by the uh, head negotiator of the ELN to come to Cuba and uh, and have a conversation. So I went there uh, in, in in Cuba and we were in this house that uh, the Cuban government had given to them uh, for the negotiations with the government. And as we were talking and, and really somehow exploring each other's stories, uh, we were just getting to know each other. At one point, um, Pablo Beltran was uh, was his name. He was chief, ne- uh, chief negotiator of the ELN told me, you know, I, uh, a few years ago, I took a trip to Germany. And, and when I was in Germany, I saw that uh, uh, there were the monuments and the, and the paintings uh, in, in uh, all these democratic institutions in Germany, remembering uh, the freedom fighters for, uh, against Hitler in Germany. Uh, they were celebrating the people who were liberating uh, their country from, from, uh, from Hitler. And that struck me because, uh, and, and he said he added, I identified so much with that struggle, right? And that struck me because suddenly I realized that my grandfather, um, who was uh, Austrian, uh, was in today's term, he would be seen as a terrorist and as a member of a guerrilla group because my uh, grandfather, Hubert in uh, Innsbruck, uh, when when he saw um, Hitler taking over Austria, he actually organized a, a group of friends who armed themselves and went into the mountains in a very strategic and large valley near um, Innsbruck and and uh, over 
you know, going through a lot of threats and a lot of uh, danger for himself and the family, including my mother, um, they liberated, right, this, this valley from the presence of the SS and gave it over to the Americans when the Americans came in, right? But I had never thought of, uh, I never got to know personally my grandfather, right? But uh, I never thought of him as a, as a member of a guerrilla group, as actually as a guerrilla leader, since he was really the leader of this group. Um, and that uh, um, and that brought me a, a, a curiosity to understand better the history of my grandfather, because mm-hmm. my grandfather was always this heroic figure, this mythic figure in our family. Uh, stories were going around, you know. Um, and what was said about him? And it was, what, what, uh, yeah, you know, it was mainly this, the fact that uh, f- to embrace this value of freedom and, and, and uh, he was a, you know, a Catholic, he was a union member, he was a conductor in, in, in an engineer, um, engine uh, conducting on, on the, in the trains and he left everything, you know, uh, and joined uh, the struggle against Hitler, right? Can you remember uh, how old you were when, when you first oh, when yeah. you first heard this when you your first memory of the you taking in the thought about your grandfather? Yeah, I, I he think, was? you know, I, I think I was in kindergarten. I, I might have been around three or four years ago, and uh, three or years old. And, uh, <laughs> three or four uh, years ago, <laughs> I wish that was Freud you know, somehow uh-huh, yeah. as a child. But uh, it, it was certainly you know in the kitchen of my grandmother in Innsbruck, and I must have. You know, be four or five years old the most. As I was listening to the story, really not understanding what World War II was and all of that. But certainly, you know, the idea that I always had about my grandfather was about this figure who lived for something bigger than himself. You know, mm-hmm. for that he sacrificed and he put his own life in the line and that of his family, really, as well, because they were, of course, persecuted and they had to go into hiding. hiding. Um, and, and, and that always uh, they weren't weren't Jewish. They were uh, no, 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 no. He was Catholic and Ca- oh yeah, you said he was just, Catholic, Austrian, uh, just Austrian yeah, and a free, just, and, a, and because he was resisting, he exactly yeah. right. Mm-hmm. So so it was you know this moment where uh, really these heroic people, uh, regardless of faith tradition, they were just you know fighting for democracy and and liberating their country from from a nightmare. And uh, so w- when that guerrilla leader said that, you know, I made. First of all, it, it was very useful for our conversation at that moment because I could connect uh, with him. I could understand his model of the world, right? And I could tell him the story of my grandfather. Um, and, and so that bond us, right? Uh, but when I came back to Europe um, the, the following uh, summer, I really had the desire for the first time in my life, actually, to go and see the places where my grandfather fought. So. If, if you ask me, you know, where are the seeds? I think they are in the values of my family, you know, starting with that tradition of, of my grandfather and that, uh, that my, my parents, uh, continued, right? So I, I grew up in a, at a peaceful time in, in, in Italy and Europe, you know, we you are, grew up in, where'd you grow up in Italy? I, I grew up in the Northern Italy, correct. Okay. I, I'm mm-hmm. probably, you know, we are the first generation that never had really war in our land uh, yeah. in, in, in Italy, so very lucky, lucky uh, generation in that sense. But we had other kinds of problems, right? We had the terrorism in the 70s, we had the mafia struggle. Uh, and then I had my family who lived with values of, of having a, you know, open doors for whoever needed us. Uh, and we were not absolutely wealthy. We were a you know, middle class family, my, both my parents working. Um, but, uh, this idea of being there for others, right? And I remember we, we were hosting people at our home, uh, uh that needed shelter, sometimes for weeks, months, uh, 
And and I remember refugee from the Lebanon wars in the in the eighties came and stood with us for a for a for a time. Um, that was pretty common uh, at home. So I, I think in, it is in the values that my parents instilled where I started understanding the importance of living for something bigger than yourself. Um, and then because I was in Italy, because uh, as I was growing up and I was a, a teenager, a new phenomenon in southern Italy happened, especially in Palermo, where the social movement against the mafia was assembling and becoming very vocal and active. Uh, and that, if you want, was a watershed moment in, in our own history in Italy because the law of the mafia is the law of silence. And, and here, finally, after decades of being under the nomination of the mafia, people were organizing and speaking up and, and denouncing. And there was Certainly this, putting sunlight on the whole thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there was this very vocal leader who was a politician and a mayor in Palermo, uh, which in our collective imagination was always the capital of the world capital of the mafia, here denouncing you know, the, the linkages between the Christian Democrats and the mafia within uh, between politicians and the mafia, which was absolutely something new and absolutely something courageous. And I saw him on TV and I said, I want to work with this guy. And and when I finally had a chance to meet him uh, in my hometown because he came for uh, for a lecture and I interviewed him as I was starting my career in journalism back then, uh, I said, OK, I want to work with you. And, and I moved to Palermo. Uh, and, and that's really where my journey then uh, started more, uh, you know, actively in this field. And, and coming back, just slowing you down a little bit, coming back to your, uh, you know, this larger than life grandfather that you had. Yeah. Um, do you, both of your parents, were they both behind you to follow? Were there messages to follow in his footsteps uh, specifically or just? No, you know, just, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very interesting. You know, in my family, we had big debates uh, at home and and. Uh, if uh, if we didn't put the keys in the right place, uh, we could go off for uh, you know hours and, and arguing <laughs> about. Uh, so there was what there was conflict. There was in, in, for these little things. That's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but, but when it came to big ideas, you know, like when I decided to go to Palermo, of course I, I was twenty two. Uh, that was the decision of leaving my house. So my parents did ask questions and wanted to make sure that I was, you know, the motivated motivations were there and I had a plan. But it was never questioned in terms of you shouldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, this freedom of actually living our lives, uh, that was always very present in, in my, my house. So the fundamental questions were, even though my parents maybe mm, wouldn't agree completely that I moved to Palermo and working with this guy, just because I was leaving my hometown and, and my home, um, but they would never stop me in any in any way. In that sense, my parents then still today, you know, they, they fully um, support what what I what I do, and I try to make them um, as part of my my life as possible. And and what's your what what how do you identify in terms of your nationality? Do you identify as being Italian? Do you do you what do you? What, well, this now? is interesting because <laughs> I have traveled and lived now in several places, uh, yeah. and I always had a. You know, I never really, uh, definitely Italian, but I'm not only Italian, right? So I never mm-hmm. had a sense of how do I define myself until I read the beautiful memoir that uh, Salman Rushdie uh, wrote about the years of um, that where he had to take up another name. And, and at one point he defines himself uh, as a multi-root uh, person, right? Just because... Multi-root? Multi-root, just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. I found that for the first time, I, 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 it resonated deeply, you know, uh, because I do think that, so I, I, you know, I lived 
Because only I, in, in Italy, I lived across the country. You know, I lived in North. Well, and Italy is, I mean, I don't know if you even think of it as a country in a way. It's well, like a, that's it, exactly right. So <laughs> Sicily is very different from my hometown yeah, yeah. in Dolomite, so in the Alps, right? So, so it's, it's, it's an assemble of countries. So I lived there in three or four cities. Uh, I lived in Germany, I lived in Switzerland. Uh, my mother is from Austria, right? I've been now in the United States for 15 years. I lived in Colombia for some time. So, so, and, and where I go, I really uh, put some roots, right? It becomes really home. I feel like New York today is my home as well, right? But I feel very at home also when I travel to Colombia. So this idea of multi-roots is actually something I identify very closely. So I've noticed, and I, wanna, I don't want to let too much time before I get you talking about a story, but I have noticed... Uh, recently, you um, and maybe it's just that I haven't been paying attention, but you seem like you suddenly are way more out there on the internet. Your profile, your your website, and and then I noticed you commenting on Tony Robbins, and, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so uh, so, and you you like have one of it's really interesting. I mean, I think as a as a using self as instrument. Uh, to intervene in in complex systems, which of course is kind of the niche of this is the niche of this podcast sure. essentially. Um, you've kind of decided to. I think you've used the, the internet as a platform, in a sense, to do that with with the world. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, oh uh, you, you have been paying very close attention and noticing. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, so I got to get right. Yeah, uh, and you know, it, it's really. Uh, I, I'm just. First of all, I'm extremely curious, and and I always like to see uh, what's out there, what's the next step, and and you know, trying to anticipate uh, and just be curious of how uh, the field evolves. Um, and I just noticed uh, in in the past few years that internet is becoming an increasingly important platform uh, through which you can reach people, share your stories, and educate people, and get educated. So. Um, that's really where, when in the last few years, I, I put more attention and tried to um, not become an expert, but I, I did a couple of full immersions in in uh, what that means, and I'm trying to apply and modeling people that I see are doing uh, doing great. But the other shift I think that you mentioned in the question that for me has been important. Uh, you, you know, w when we train for conflict resolution, we learn a lot of skills that are very important, right? From from effective communication to negotiation. Uh, to mediation and, and reframing all of that. Um, but I, in my own experience, I realized how important it is actually helping people who are embedded in conflict. And I had really the great fortune of working especially with a lot of uh, uh, perpetrators of violence that you, 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 you know, uh, getting to an agreement or getting to yes uh, is actually not enough uh, to make a lasting shift, especially if you if you work in, with more intractable situation, right? So, so uh, at one point, I just experienced that the tools that conflict resolution is giving me were limited in in going deeper in the shift. At least the, the, the tools that I had learned and that I have been trained with were just to to shortcoming in terms of being able to make uh, lasting and more uh, deeper shifts. And uh, and for me, uh, again, because I'm curious to see what other people use and, and, and how, what kind of tools they, they, uh, they combine. Um, I, I was preparing a class in conflict resolution at Columbia University and I was trying to understand what kind of videos are out there on the internet. And I came across this video of Tony Robbins, whom, you know, I heard of, but probably in the back of my mind, uh, he was something like coming from California to New Age to out there. So probably, you know, not paid really 
not probably, I didn't pay never attention to who he really was and what he was doing, but I saw this video when he did an intervention on 9-11, he was on the Hawaii when, uh, you know, the World Trade Center came down and and he had this mask. I know, yeah, just, I know right? the story. Yeah, yeah tell it. It's, it's a, it's, and, yeah. and so I, I saw this intervention because you had mm-hmm. basically uh, in these two people, the metaphor of the great clash, if you want, that, mm-hmm. that just played out in the, on 9-11. And it's a two hours video documentary. It's called in- Indirect Negotiation, where, where he uses a variety of great tools. Uh, which go from NLP to Ericksonian hypnosis, but mis- you know, you really NLP meaning neuro linguistic yeah. programming mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, and you really and, and it's really you know uh, that's maybe the, the tools, but but it's really his uh, art and how he does it in a in a very spontaneous way. And seeing that shift, wait, did you uh, say uh, his art or his heart? No, no, it's both. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. His art is is really uh, deep in his heart. Yeah. yeah. And, and and then, then I well, then I st- step back and say, okay, you know, uh, if you are able to do this on nine eleven, I mean, o- already, you know, already facilitating hundreds of people in the room, several from New York on that day, uh, you, you have to have some skills, <laughs> mm-hmm. some confidence. You know, you have to know what what you're doing because otherwise, tremendous, tremendous presence, right? Tremend- yeah. And then seeing the effect because these two people or that he intervened on went on and created a foundation between Israelis yeah. and Arabs. So it was a lasting change. Yeah. So when I saw that, right, then I said, okay, these are the kind of effects really, you know, this kind of deep changes. That's really why I'm in this field. Right. So, so I, I wanted to really emerge myself in understanding better, the story of Tony Robbins, where he was coming from, what kind of tool he's using, what, are, what, what is his genealogy, right? And that's how I then discovered the field uh, of positive psychology, performance psychology, uh, uh, the whole field of personal development. And I saw that uh, there are tools out there that are very valid, in my opinion, that if I intertwine them and mix them with my training conflict resolution, I might be able, when needed, to serve better the people of the communities that I am. And, and that has been since my, my, uh, my experience. And, and, you know, uh, I have been now writing a blog on psychology today. Uh, and that came out from a simple idea. I, from my own experience, you know, it's not that the tools that I use in the field, using the field when I sit down with a perpetrator or a victim, uh, and connecting and building rapport and, 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 and trying to help are not really different from uh, uh, my everyday interactions. You know, I still have to have effective communication when I interact with my partner at home, uh, with my teachers, with my students, with my colleagues, right, with my friends. So, so I think there is a lot that uh, from our field we can actually offer in this world that is very complex on how to navigate this complexity and, and, and serving people. So let me, I may come back to that, but I want to, I want to make sure that I get you into, um, a, a specific situation yeah. where, and, uh, and I don't know if you, you had mentioned Colombia. I'm, you know, Colombia is very dear to my heart. I lived there, but I don't know if that's a story you want to tell. Sure. Uh, well, okay. Cause yeah, I think, but it, it maybe, be- you know, maybe we can just, uh, start from, from the beginning. I mean, how, how they, my story started because it, it was a very important moment in my career where basically I said, okay, conflict is my thing, right? And, uh, at the time, I, I had just come to the United States, uh, so it was in, uh, in early 2001, and um, someone we both know and are friends of, uh, Andrea Bartoli, who is now at uh, Sydney Hall College, uh, a dean there, and, and he was the founder and the director at the time of the Center for International Conflict Resolution, and 
very generously, he accepted me as part of that uh, community. I think it was some sort of uh, solidarity among <laughs> Italians who, who tried to make <laughs> it. Was, uh, Although he's just generally he, a generous he, he's person. He's just great. Yeah, yeah. And, and absolutely inspiration. And, you know, mm-hmm. he, he really um, uh, changed my life in that sense uh, from, from a career point of view. Um, and so as I was wor- started working with him, um, I was invited to go to Colombia uh, to work with a university. And uh, they asked me to do a workshop in conflict resolution for a community who had been just going through some terrible massacres by dead squads. And, uh, what, in, part of, what part of Colombia? In a, a fisher village on, uh, on the um, border between Colombia and Panama, so northwest uh, yeah, yeah. of, mm-hmm. of, of Colombia. And uh, they had a sustainable development project there, but th- the fact that it was this massacre had uh, uh, frozen people in terror, and they wanted to work with these uh, 40 community leaders, and they asked me to design a workshop. So, And, and maybe explain about the massacre, wh- yes, why did that occur? So, so that, that historically, uh, that is a territory which was a sort of a safe haven for the FARC leftist guerrilla. Uh, for decades, and then uh, the paramilitaries started to expand their domination and their control, and so the you know in, in the terror strategy they had was to go into these villages and basically randomly massacring people because you know uh, it, it was really a terror strategy. So they would get them, their control of the population right away uh, and and uh, overnight, basically, right? And it, and it wasn't it wasn't. Uh, I, I'm asking this because I'm just tracking the. The strategy around women and rape, was there a lot of that as well, or was it more just just killing people? Uh, you know, for what I knew at the time, uh, in that particular village, uh, it, it was really um, just going in and, 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 and killing people. But, but definitely the paramilitaries, uh, certainly also in that village, over the time, they absolutely did terrible things and, and had sexual violence against the women, which is now recognized in Colombia also in the peace process with the with the FARC actually as a as a as a crime against humanity, which is and as a strategic act yeah. of, of war. Yeah, yeah. So it's part of a war strategy, yeah. not outside. Right. Yeah. Um, so so with Andrea's help and others, we uh, I prepared very well. You know, for uh, it was my first uh, conflict resolution workshop to be facilitated in Colombia. Uh, that was 2001. I didn't speak the language there, so I, I knew I would have someone translating. So I was very excited because finally I would go in a war zone uh, and 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 do this thing, right? Um, so I prepared lots of notes. You know, I, I read everything I could read, uh, making notes, designing this thing, and then I brought my stack of notes, and we went to this very small plane, which uh, uh, landed, you know, on 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 an asphalt strip ending into a soccer field, and. And I, I remember, you know, as the plane was coming down, I saw a peasant with a cow in the midst of his landscape. And I said, well, I thought, you know, my life might be at risk now because of the parameters, but I'm going to die because of this cow. We are going to hit her. But, you know, everybody knew their drills. And so the peasant at the right moment took the cow out of the way and we landed safely in the soccer field. Mm-hmm. And it was humid. Uh, it was very hot, but it, I really didn't care because I was there, you know, for a great mission. I was there with for this conflict resolution workshop, uh, you, you know, with, with this eagerness of, of of the beginning, right? Where where you think you have all the tools and all the responses, even though I didn't speak the language, I didn't know much about it. Didn't speak. You speak Spanish, right? You didn't now speak I speak the, very fluently. Oh, okay, okay. Italian, I think, at this point. But yeah, yeah. At the time, no, I was I was just um, beginning my adventure there. 
And and so I finally go and, and I sit down with this colleague uh, who was teaching at the at a university in Medellin. He was an Austrian, really nice, funny, round guy. And and uh, and so I put all these stacks of notes on the table and I excited started telling him what I want to do here and there. And then he stops me and says, nine nine nine, you know, you cannot do this. You, know, you cannot talk about conflict resolution here, right? You cannot bring up the massacres. You cannot talk about peace because all sensitive language. We really don't know who belongs to whom among these leaders, right? So we need to be remain very neutral, right? And I run into a sort of a panic because, well, everything I had prepared, I could just throw it into the ocean, into the water, right? It was absolutely not uh, useful whatsoever. And uh, and that was a Friday evening and on such a... So interesting, I'm thinking about it. Of course, it's coming to mind. I don't know if you know Brene Brown. Uh, she's done a lot of writing on vulnerability. That's, that's uh, you know, she's been one of the... Yeah. Foremost head talk, but she, I remember her telling her, her one of her stories is she wasn't allowed. She was told she started to talk. She wasn't allowed to use the word vulnerability. And she's like, oh, well, that's interesting. How am I supposed it, to yeah. proceed? Yeah. And here you are. You're not supposed to talk about the elephant in the room. You're yeah, supposed and, and actually, to. The thought I had was, wow, if we cannot even talk about peace, you know, uh, how bad is the situation? <laughs> uh, and why do you think that? What I don't quite well, because, get it. You know, I don't, yeah, uh, I, quite get, yeah. So at the time I was not that familiar with the dynamics, but uh, thinking back, I, I think that because of the paramilitary's presence there, so uh, yeah. extreme right wing, the right. peace language, conflict resolution, peace and peace building, was attributed more uh, historically to the left and to more. So it made you look yeah, like you yeah. were so not looked, neutral. Exactly. Yeah. It, okay. It make me feel more uh, closer to to the yeah, peace, right? which would not have put myself at risk in jeopardy, really, yeah. uh, but more the people who invited me, the gotcha. leaders who, right? Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Secondly, yeah, yeah. regardless, um, which is very important in the use of language that we do when we do this work, it would have not served the purpose of these people, right? I, m- I have, might have been attached very much about my meaning of peace, but it wouldn't resonate with the experience in their meaning. So, it would why have, is, and I, why, can you say why? Uh, can you say well, that more? Yeah, exactly. That? So, so if, if when I say peace, instead of thinking of something beautiful that we want to create together, it reminds me of the dynamic of war. Well, using peace is actually not serving the purpose of me being there, which was instead facilitating, you know, maybe not talking about peace, but facilitating an experience of peace, right? And that for me was in, in, important to as, as a lesson learned that you use the language that you need to use in order to facilitate the opening of a certain space where a certain experience yeah. is possible. C- kind of like you were getting ahead of yourself with that. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I was bringing myself. I was bringing my yeah, yeah. model of the world, my map, and imposing it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so this was Friday night, and on Saturday morning, we would have this workshop, and, uh, and I had nothing because everything I had prepared was just not possible. So I took a stroll on the beach. Very may, the, may the force be with you, Lou yeah. Skywalker. <laughs> In fact, I looked up to the horizon, you know, very beautiful Caribbean scene, and said, please, some ideas come from there, because uh, now I have, you know, I have, uh-huh. and you know, they, they, for them, it was a big deal, someone coming from New York, from Columbia University being there, and now, I thought I'm going to let everybody down, starting with my friend Andrea Bartoli, because I have nothing in, in my hands. So I was panicking a little bit. Uh, and, and at one point, I saw two children, and they looked like fighting the water. You know, they were throwing each other in the water. And I was almost jumping to, to intervene and, you know, to be the peacemaker there and, and, and separate them. And as I was almost jumping towards them, I realized they got up and they embraced themselves. They started laughing. They shook their hands. And we were playing. They were, right? 
and I said, oh, wow, interesting. Maybe, the, you know, I said, maybe I don't have to intervene all the time, right? Maybe intervening is not always the best. Maybe you have just to step back sometimes and let people play it out, right? I don't know if you know uh, Marv Weisbord and Sandra Janoff's, uh, one of the best books I've ever read on facilitation called Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, that notion, I think a lot of us can over-intervene, just like doctors can over-intervene. Yes. Yeah. And, uh it's sometimes the subtlety of one's presence in the system that I think can make the most profound uh, difference. But anyway, I'm, I'm interjecting. I want to, yeah. No, so, no, but, but yeah. It, it's very, it's very poignant because I, I understood in that moment, I understood that you know, conflict resolution is both about uh, holding on and letting go. Right. In that mm -hmm. moment, I had to let go of everything that I had prepared. And hold on more on my, you know, connecting with the true intention why I was there. I was not there to intervene to serve the world. I was there to serve whatever circumstances, right? And 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 when I did that check, which just you know, with that connection with myself that happened while I was looking at two, those two boys uh, playing around with themselves, I I just realized that uh, that's really all, the whole thing that I needed to do was to connect with my purpose and and explore in a certain curiosity. You know, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, right? But not saying it's... Yeah, my, my, uh, one of my biggest teachers, uh, John Carter, who's uh, at the Gestalt Institute of Cleveland, he always said, you, you, if you know your intent, you'll know your intervention. Yeah. If you you yeah. just have to get really clear yeah. about your intent. And, 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 and that opened up, you know, instead of being close and stressed and anxious and preoccupied, I, I, it became an exploration, became a matter of curiosity. Oh, I don't know actually tomorrow what will come out. Well, that's some, somehow funny, right? The only idea that came to myself and was something that I had wrote in my notes was that storytelling is cathartic. That there was somehow a principle. So as I was walking back to the village, well, I thought, well, why don't tomorrow we don't do a workshop where we rebuild the collective memory of the village, right? Wow. And I said, so instead of asking me about the massacres or asking questions, let, let the conversation emerge. Right, and that's really what I did. So the next day, uh, sounds on, pretty. It sounds very brilliant. Yeah. So you know, really on, this, on this intuition, I had these forty leaders around me, right? Mm -hmm. And with translation, I explained, you know, let's let's do this exercise today. Let's just uh, uh, reconstruct the collective memory of this village. You know, think about what your grand grandparents and grandparents told you. Think about the story you heard from your. Uh, 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 parents and from your neighbors and think about the stories that you live directly. You know, secretly, I was hoping maybe someone will also talk about the massacres and we take it from there. I mean, but dangerous. <laughs> I mean, not, not dangerous, but there you are opening up, you know, you're in, in the invitation has got to be in the collective memory. So I don't, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, I put it out there, right? And, and I said, now you have like 20 minutes to jot down your notes to think about it and then we share them, right? And, and it was beautiful when, you know, they took it very seriously. They were writing down, uh, there was this silence, uh, you know, just this birth and, and the humidity. It was. Uh, I'm sorry, although the people it, in the room, there were 40. Yeah. And they were, they were multiple stakeholder groups represented. Yeah, was, they were. Groups, uh, you know, um, it, it was women, it was men, uh, it was elderly, it was young people, uh, different, uh, um, you know, people who had small restaurants, people who were fishers, uh, people who had just uh, immigrated there more recently, people who have been there the entire life. It was really uh, representative of a of a society that was there in this small village that might have had 
maybe four or five hundred people living there, right? So okay. it was okay. like ten percent, if you want, of a village was there. Um, and so we did this exercise, it, 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 and it was beautiful. It was sacred. And then we started, you know, sharing. And I had a, a, a board where I, this uh, friend of mine, would just, you know, write down whatever uh, they said. And I remember the first woman who stood up uh, shared the story of when the first mirror arrived to the village and <laughs> how her experience the first time seeing her face reflecting in a mirror and not in the water. Right. And, and that sparked a whole interesting conversation because uh, especially the younger generation didn't know them. So, you know, we made up the story of this uh, mirror where it came from, who brought it and, and all of that. It was, and that set somehow a nice atmosphere. And then it was right after, I, um, it was another woman who stood up and remembered the night when the paramilitaries penetrated the village and uh, uh, killed her husband and how she was hiding under the bed. And it was, you know, very strong. Um, and everybody actually connected with her. And, and I think the important experience they made at that moment was that all of them had that trauma. All of them went through that pain. But until that moment, it remained somehow private. It was too, it, it didn't feel safe to share uh, the, the, the mourning, the terror, the, the fear that they had uh, going through. And they discovered that, that was actually a shared common experience. Uh, and of course, there were tears and, and other people started sharing that story. But because we had created that safe space, it was not, uh, it was, tra it, it was transcending that reality by putting it together. It was uh, really uh, rebuilding uh, the links of the community after they were frozen by what, what had happened. And it's tricky business. It's, uh, you know, it's just listening. It's Black History Month here. Oh, you know, I guess you, and uh, Maya Angelou, um, apparently she was raped as a seven-year-old and then didn't speak for five years. And, you know, uh, getting people to um, start talk, speaking their, about trauma is, um, is tricky because, I mean, I'm, I'm, I tend to lean into it and, and let it happen, not force people, but yeah. open it up. But you also don't want to re-traumatize people, no, too, no, or you no. want you. Um, so you're dealing with you must have been dealing with a, a, a huge amount of trauma in yeah. that room. Yeah. At the same time, uh, because they knew each other, there was a history of being a community. It's not that these people were coming there for the first time uh, because, you know, they were there actually with an intent. Right. They, they, they came uh, because they wanted to do actually an exercise. They didn't know exactly what it was about, but they had actually chosen to be there and, and to contribute. And because... They, and, and why was that? I, mean, I still was wondering, like, how they came to be in the room. Did It, 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 it was invited. Uh, it was part of this uh, series of workshops and trainings that the university had set up for this uh, sustainable development. Okay, uh, project, okay. Right? So okay. They were, it was a participatory process, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not the first of the workshops. There was already a little bit of a history there. And... and uh, and because basically the stories we elicited, so so I think this woman felt free, you know, to uh, or wanted to free herself somehow from this story that she was uh, uh, bearing in, inside herself. And 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 for sure everybody knew about this story because everybody knew that her husband was killed. They might not have known somehow the details or how she lived that story, right? But that created connections, uh, and and I think they, they they felt the space was safe, right? And yeah. and uh, and we just let it go. You know, there was certainly no intervention on my behalf. There was no questions or wanted to know more. You know, whatever someone wanted to say, it would be said, and and that was it. And and if they started a conversation, that was fine. But there was a lot of respect, 
and a lot of empathy uh, among all of them. Um, and, and that, you know, changed completely the atmosphere. Uh, it connects them again, you know, and, and made them feel we are all in this together. And they started being very creative about what they actually need in this village to move forward, right? Uh, I remember we wanted to build a, uh, um, a new room in a, in a school where some internet and computer can be put. They, they were thinking of a health center. Uh, so it became very creative at, at the end. And, and uh, I remember, you know, the last moment of this workshop on Sunday night, I, I just asked them to share, you, you know, the experience. What, what was it these two days of working together? And, uh, and I, we wanted to record it. And I didn't know if that was safe for them and recording. So I, you know, I, I just said, if you don't mind, if you will, we, we can record it. If you don't, we, we don't have to, really. Um, but I was impressed how everybody was actually uh, holding on to that recorder and making sure that their testimony and their voice was yeah. going to be recorded, which yeah, for yeah. Me was really impressive, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I always remember this old elderly, probably the eldest among uh, the group, uh, Fisher, man <clears throat> who stood up uh, with this recorder in the hand and said to everybody, you know, I want to actually go and talk to the leaders of the guerrilla and talk to the leaders of the paramilitary, explain to them what we did in these two days, and I'm ready to give my life for that, right? And I had the sense of this uh, older prophet somehow who had seen the promised land of peace and, and was so um, taken by the experience and understood that that was so important that, you know, he, he, he wanted to make sure that this dynamic that had started this weekend could uh, could continue. And yeah, so for me, you know, uh, it was a great lesson because uh, it didn't really matter everything I had prepared, though probably it mattered in the sense that it, you know, it, 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 it put me in a certain state, right? And so I arrived with a, with a desire to serve, but I eventually had to throw that out of, you know, not holding on on that, on holding on only on the on the purpose and, and just going with the flow, going with the dynamic, you know, staying and, and mirroring and matching what was happening uh, at the at the at the time. And I was really blown away. I, I remember when I went back and I told uh, Andrea about it. I say, you know, uh, I'm amazed at how a couple of tools, really uh, simple tools, can really help people to find in themselves, to discover in themselves that strength and that courage that is needed to move on and, and how it is possible to create a space of peace even in the midst of the worst uh, violence. So, and, and uh, I mean, it sounds like one of the tools, uh, I, I wonder how you would list the tools, but it sounded like one of them was giving people space to tell their stories. Yes. Uh, and it, I, I actually, what, what would you say were the simple tools that I think the, were key. I think the first tool was, uh, for, um, for myself, the first tool was self-awareness. I mean, really understanding what was going on, really understanding where that source of anxiety was coming from when I freaked out because I didn't have anything to offer at a certain point and realizing that that was not really serving myself and anybody else and, and mm -hmm. realizing that helped me to do the shift and be mm -hmm. present in a different way, more with the purpose rather than with the eagerness of being this conflict resolution expert who lands in the jungle, right? Which, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. uh, so less of an Indiana Jones and more at, at service, right? So I think that, that that shift was very important and, and it's something that remained with me for the rest of uh, now 15 years that I've been working in, in Colombia. The second one is exactly what you do, uh, what you said is that listening opens up the space of trust, of connection, right? So it's not not what you say, it's not principles, it's not whatever you can teach. It's really 
listening with, with, with an authentic and deep intent and, 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 and staying with, with what you're listening, you know, not, 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 not moving forward, not manipulating, not anticipating, but really staying with whatever people are saying. I think it's very important to open that space and it opens up, uh, you know, conversation that you cannot imagine or foresee. Yeah, it's it's a. I mean, it's it's reminding me of the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. It's yes. reminding me of your the 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 language you use in your bio of um, I can't remember it now and it's not in front of me exactly, but getting people um, rather than focusing on who is right and who yeah, is listen wrong, to their stories, listening to their stories, yeah. and leaning into their stories um, and getting them interested in each other's stories. Yeah. yeah. And I wanted to, you know, something else you said about. Um, uh, about bonding, and you, you referred to it earlier about bonding with, um, you know, I was I was just actually interviewing um, Mel Duncan, who works with Nonviolent Peace Force, and uh, they I don't know if you know them, but they are going in into the center of the most deadly conflicts mm -hmm. as neutrals, and of course they have to uh, really be neutrals, yeah. and so and you spoke to that as well as how do you bond with the perpetrators yeah. as opposed to the victims? Yeah. You know, how do you maintain neutrality with, um, I mean, the thing that's interesting about perpetrator and victim gets into, I mean, we could have conversations Separate. about, the, you know, so much to be yeah. said about yeah. that, yeah. Um, both at the group, high group level and, at, you know, the, the small group level. Yeah. Um, because, of course, many times you'll see people um, uh, uh, perpetrating from the victim position. There's yeah. a lot of that that goes on. And um, anyway, so how do you, how in your experience have you been able to bond yeah. with the perpetrators? Because you've dealt with some pretty horrendous, yeah. quote unquote, perpetrators. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, first of all, you know, it goes back a little bit to what I was saying beginning. I'm extremely curious uh, and I really want to find out what brought you uh, to the point where we meet and, you know, what, what's your story? You know, how, how did you get to the point where we are meeting and, and uh, what are the key decisions that you made along the way? Right. Um, so I, you know, I never think when I meet someone, I never think of them. I never put a label, you're a perpetrator, you're a, or a, or a victim. Uh, and actually in my work, you know, what I discover is that I would say, if I just think of the stories that I listen to, and I listen to hundreds of perpetrators, I would say 90% were victim first and perpetrators yeah. later. So, it's yeah. it's a it's a hybrid identity uh, most of it most of the time. Um, but again, the, the easiest way has been for me always to listen. And actually, what, sorry, what do you so do you make any meaning of that? Uh, you know, do you make up stuff about why that is? Why why it is that uh, they are both? Yeah, that they started as victims and then became perpetrators. Well, you know, I uh, I, I think it it varies a little bit, but but I would say that um, sometimes uh, the people who then become also perpetrators think that that's the best decision they make given the information and the knowledge they have at the moment. You know, sometimes it's the only way they have to feel useful to feel someone that they're actually reacting to a situation in a in in a certain way that they become someone. Right, uh, a lot of them, the, the great majority I met are men, and for many, it, it has to do with the dimension of masculinity, and you know, they, or, they or only career. I guess uh, doesn't uh, Tony Robbins refer to it as a the need for significance? The need for significance, absolutely, right? It, it's, mm -hmm. and we all have that, and they just find out that that's the best strategy we can have to 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 be someone, right? 
Um, so sometimes it's and sometimes it's also very circumstantial. You know, I I remember this paramilitary guy uh, who, who became a major uh, guy. He was just telling me that he had lost uh, both his grandparents, who uh, who was very attached. He was 13 years old. Uh, out in the countryside, not, no much going on, no affection anymore. He had been abandoned by his mom, and a paramilitary group came across the land where he was living and offered him to join. And of course, you know, uh, for him that was at that moment the best decision he could he could make. Uh, would have been the uh, guerrillas coming through or the military coming through, he would have joined them, right? There's no ideological really reason. It was just the best strategy of the moment to get out of a situation. And to feel like he belonged yeah, to something. Yeah, someone, right? So it's, it's yeah. a lot of, of that going on. Yeah. Um, but, but so connecting, I found it, I find it always, uh, people ask me a lot, and sometimes I just put out a book which is called The Parastate, where I tell the stories of these members of the paramilitaries I, I met in my ethnographic work. Um, and, and, and a lot of people tell me, how, how do you make, how do you meet these people? How do you make them tell their stories? The truth is that, for them, it's such a unique experience to have someone who is genuinely interested in their story that just the fact that you sit down and listen for them is completely new right. As, right. A, as a story. So we're, And we are always happy to talk about ourselves, as is obvious in these hours of conversation, yeah. right? And so, so do they too, right? Uh, so yeah. I never found it uh, very, very, very difficult. What I found it very interesting, it's something that I learned from an uh, anti-mafia prosecutor um, in Palermo, who was then uh, killed by, by, by the mafia, Pablo Borsellino, he always said that when he was, you know, he's one of the first one who was able to have uh, members of the mafia opening up and, and, and uh, revealing their secrets from within the Cosa Nostra, right, which allowed, uh, it was a watershed moment in the persecution of the mafia in Sicily. And, and he always said that he felt the responsibility when he met with these people, he felt the responsibility of, and, and he felt like being the, um, you know, the, the best representative of, of, of society, you know, of a civil society, and, and to really embody those values that, that come with being a prosecutor, right? Because he wanted to show them a different world, and, and he felt the responsibility somehow to represent a different value system. Um, and that, for me, has always been in the back of, uh, of my mind, you know, being really authentic when I meet them. Uh, and it becomes a it really becomes a dialogue because it is a dialogue between two people with two completely stories. And the same way I'm curious about their stories, they become curious about my own stories. And that's when the most interesting conversation start. And I remember as I was interviewing uh, a pretty, you know, bloodthirsty paramilitary at one point, and he was very graphic, I, I, I really... Uh, wanted to leave the room and I, and I got to a moment where I was despising even being there and having to listen to that. Um, but just at one point I had, as I was listening to him, I just understood that that, you know, that reaction was coming from me putting myself on a higher moral um, pedestal and not because I had any sympathy with what he did, but I was judging him from my pretty comfortable life, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and and when, I, when I had that thought, I understood that in his, you know, if I put myself in my shoes and I had those elements and, and uh, those moments and that knowledge to make the decision I had to make, maybe uh, I would have made the same choices that he made. Uh, and I realized that that capacity for rage, that capacity for violence, uh, was also in me. I, I have, you know, just because of my human condition, I never was put in a situation uh, where I had to um, 
to exercise it. Yeah, it was, yes. I was right. always put in check that part, right? I think that's a beautiful thing you just said. I think it's, it's just, it's beautiful for all of us to, uh, to be recognized. You know, and, and mm-hmm. that really, and that for me, uh, kept, took away judgment, moral judgment mm-hmm. of these people. Mm-hmm. And I always, uh, was able to meet them as person. Never, you know, and I always told them that I don't agree. I mean, I'm pretty honest with, you know, respectful, but honest with them. But let me tell you a small, uh, um, experience I had, I, I enjoy it, don't share it publicly. So I give you that. I, I, I tell my students, but not publicly. But after a few years, I was, you know, you become part of a landscape when you do uh, your part in that. You absorb a lot, right? And, and, and so also your mind starts thinking and, and acting uh, as people do in those situations. And after mm-hmm. a few years, I was there. At one point, uh, I, I just got the, the news from someone who was in touch with prison and so on that a particular paramilitary guy who I had interviewed and even helped was planning to kidnap me, right? <laughs> and when I when I heard that, you know, my first instinct was not... Uh, what would be his purpose? Uh, no, I was not asking those questions. And I was also not saying, oh, uh, you know, I need to call the police and protect myself. Mm-hmm. I My first instinct and reaction was, uh, we have to kill the guy. Right. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and, and, and then I, I was even scared of my own thought, but I realized uh-huh. I became part of that landscape. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, right. As right. I, I was there and I knew that that actually in that condition, going to the police was serving no purpose because that's, yeah. that's what it is. Um, and then of course, you know, I was able to, to step back and, and think about it and being very interested that I had actually that instinct I had been listening to all the time. So that capacity actually was in me. So only that, thank God, you know, then, then my history, my story and everything else made me realize that that was just uh, a reflection, you know, uh, uh, an instinctive moment and not, not a, never became a plan, right? So I shared that then with another paramilitary guy and, and I told him, you know, this happened to me. So and so I heard that. So by the way, I heard, I don't even know if it's true. It was a rumor, but a rumor kills in, in a, in a context of conflict, right? So I was really part, became part of the landscape in that sense too. And I told him, you know, so and so I heard this and so and so happened. And, and it was really nice because this guy wanted to show me his friendship and say, but at least I can go and, and have him beat him up, right? And I said, <laughs> no, I mean, I thank you. No, I really appreciate it. He really wanted to offer, you know, yeah, yeah. To do, right? Say, mm-hmm. well, and, and it started a beautiful conversation because I said, you know, we really have to stop uh, this chain of violence, right? And, and I said, I have a chance here, right? Actually. Uh, not to react with violence to, if it's true, that he wants to kidnap me, which is another act of violence, right? And we started this beautiful conversation about, you know, stopping that reactive chain of... I always, um, you know, my gestalt training is such that, you know, when you're intervening in a complex system, you always have to bring something to the system that the system's not doing for itself. But then you have to be really careful about, you say, become part of the landscape or becoming what I would say, becoming confluent with the sure, system. Sure. So you become, you're not, and because you, then you're not offering anything yeah. anymore. Yeah. You know, no, you're just absolutely. becoming sort of sucked in. Yeah. And it's a very delicate dance, I yeah. think. Of, be, of, be, uh, this is why I, I think it's very important uh, if you do field work research, as I was doing in that time, or if you do conflict resolution work, that you actually leave the field uh, yeah, yeah. often just, just to, you know, re- refresh yourself and, and, and clean yourself if you want right. from from uh, right. also the negativity that you necessarily pick up when you hear all those stories, right? Right, 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 right. Otherwise, and the fear. I mean, I, I'm sure for you, the fear of when you hear that you're going to get kidnapped, it's it's terrifying. Yeah, you know? it, it's, it's yeah. serious, right? And and 
And, and, and you don't care really if it's a rumor. You don't have a luxury to think, is it a rumor or is it a, a fact? Because right. the only way right. to, uh, the only way to verify is that letting it happen. So you try not to have that happen, right? So, although, you know, as I, as I said, the time goes by quickly yep. and the time is going by quickly. And I, I wanted to ask you, somebody who's really very deeply immersed in the peace building conflict resolution field, um, uh, you know, what, what are your hopes for where this is heading? Uh, what's your best case scenario for what we can do with this field and, and the kind of difference we can make? You know, this is a very important question, I think, because if we are looking at what is happening outside in the world, right, uh, with ISIS and all of that, you, you, you know, there, there seems to be less and less uh, uh, opportunity to have uh, traditional ways of doing conflict resolution, right? We, we might not see less and less negotiation tables or formal peace talks. Uh, so I, I think this is a very, it's a very um, uh, uh, challenging time also for, for, those of us who are, you know, not only doing this kind of work, but trying to live according to those uh, principles. Uh, for for our field, I think a new space uh, where we can contribute and that is very important also for everything that is happening are urban areas. You know, uh, by 2030, according to the United Nations, we will have 80% of the population living in town. So the new theater of conflict where conflicts are playing out will be our cities, right? And not just in terms of violence, but in terms of every kind of challenges, you know, from immigration to viruses. We, we see now what, what is happening with this new virus in, in, in uh, Latin America, uh, you know, climate change and, and also and also the violence, the transnational networks of crime is really going to play out uh, in the cities. And that's where we are going to be affected. And, and I think we need to create capacitate our communities, our urban communities uh, to live uh, according to the principle and the strategies and the tools of conflict resolution to to do strategic uh, community building as, as a response to to the senseless sometimes violence that that comes out and interrupting you know learning to interrupt that that chain of reactions that that is only increasing violence instead of uh, interrupting I, I I think we need to interrupt history somehow you know I maybe I can finish with this I, I when Paris happened uh, a few months ago um, you know I. I uh, I always feel when those things happen, uh, for a moment, I really feel overwhelmed because you say, you know, first of all, you realize this is, we, this stays for a, for a while. You know, this is the kind of experience we will have. We have to, to face that. And how do we confront this? You know, how do we respond to that? And, uh, and it's easy if you are a leader, a politician to say, you know, we take our war to, to ISIS and, and all of that. But, you are actually speaking from the same space. You are just reinforcing that that narrative. You're part of the landscape. You're part of the landscape, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? You, even if you think you are more legitimate now because mm -hmm. you have been elected, you are a state representative. Truth is, you are playing within the same model of the world. And and as I was thinking of that, I, I saw this young uh, uh, German pianist who uh, who put his piano on a track and traveled the whole night from Germany to Paris and opened up his piano and, and played image from John Lennon before the theater, right? And people were assembling. And yeah. I said, wow, that's a completely different response, right? Uh, I, I just want to make sure people heard what you said, that he yeah. played the song Imagine by, yeah, John, Lennon by John Lennon on his piano. Right? Yeah, uh, beautiful. And, and that was his way. Uh, then I discovered actually that he does that and goes to all this places of tension around the world and shows up with his piano and, and, and plays, right? And, and What I, a beautiful thing. It's, it's a wonderful <laughs> response, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, it's the same event, uh, 
but completely different response. He's actually not perpetuating the same narrative. He's actually interrupting it. Now, we might think that the president of a country has is more powerful than a pianist, right? But, but I think we should uh, think about more about the pianist, understand what he really did. And if we understand that and we live it and we uh, multiply it, then I, I'm sure we have a critical mass enough to at least contain uh, if, if reduce and maybe transform the dynamics that are uh, uh, still creating violence in our world. I think what you're saying also uh, speaks to something that's um, that I'm thinking a lot about these days, which is the power of the leadership. The, the era of heroic leadership is kind of over. The yeah. thing that one person can do something or top of the system can do something is is just not really yeah. enough yeah. because of the complexity. But to to have people understand that everybody has the capacity yes. to do something that's meaningful and that pianist, I mean, that can be, I, I'm sure, is a super profound thing. Uh, that he, and, you know, by the way, the world still is out there and, and we are still alive and we are still doing things because the majority of us are responding to those acts of violence in a completely way. We are just not just don't recognize how much our, yeah. you know, if we can have a compounding effect of our daily peace things, they, they don't reach the headlines. But actually, if ISIS would be the only reality, we wouldn't have the world at this point, right? Uh, and so violence and, and terrorism is not the only dynamic. It's actually a very small dynamic going on. The majority is that a lot of us every day do their duties with uh, with dedication, you know, uh, as parents, as, as, as lovers, as teachers, uh, as whoever, we, you know, in our professions. And that's why the world goes ahead and, and, and is actually, you know, a good place to be. We just have to be more aware of this peace capacity that we have every day. And we are living it without maybe calling it peace building. But that's actually what we do, because otherwise we wouldn't have our planet. And uh, I just want to end with, um, because I know, like, on the one hand, you go and you, you, um, you speak to the U.S. Congress about strategies in terms of uh, best strategies for resolving conflict, but you also have a blog that really speaks to each of us as human beings and what we can do. Um, so I think if anybody's listening and, and wants to know, uh, you know, get some daily, some daily, ins I don't know if it's daily. Uh, uh, no, it's weekly. The blog, I, I put, okay. yeah. Okay, hmm? but it but it really takes it right down to the, the personal level and 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 what each of us can do um, to uh, to be uh, conflict resolvers, to be leaders, to be better negotiators, to bring a more peaceful world. So um, anyway, anything anything else you want to say as well, we sign I, off, Aldo? A big thank you, Susan, to to you for uh, this wonderful conversation for all of uh, those who uh, have listened to us and. Yeah, uh, one place where we can meet again is uh, my blog and my uh, website, and I hope we can continue this conversation also offline. <laughs> yes, yeah. beautiful. Thank you very much for the work you're doing in the world. I think it's you know obviously much appreciated and needed. So thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the Peace Building Podcast. Check out thepeacebuildingpodcast.com for show notes and for more great information and resources. We like your feedback, comments, and suggestions. Please email them to Susan at thepeacebuildingpodcast.com. And join us again for next week's episode for more great thinking, innovations, and ideas to take our planet to the next level.